We want RUF to be a safe place to process. Because, as I've said repeatedly, we're all in process. Every single one of us. None of us has it all figured out. Uh, But we do believe that there's truth to be found in God's Word. In this semester, we're looking in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open there uh, to Luke chapter 3. The the passage we're going to read is also in your handout if you just want to read along there. I have written uh, 321 through 413, but we're actually going to jump over the genealogy. You can thank me for that later. Um, But it is important. So if you would, read along with me here. This is God's word. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him like in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. You skip down to verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And so the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all the authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray real quick before we look into this. Heavenly Father, we ask as we do every week, that as we come to your word... That you would open it for us. That you would open our hearts. That you would open our eyes. That you would open our ears. That you would speak to us words of grace. Words of truth. And words of life. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. I don't know if uh, you're into superhero movies. I am. Um, I'm also into wrestling. There's a dirty little secret. Um, (laughs) Professional wrestling. Uh, you know, the superhero movie thing is probably on a downward trend because like the last 10 years, we've had tons of them, right? But over the last 10 years, superhero movies have been huge, have they not? Um, and I think, I don't think there's any, I mean, there's always kind of been superhero movies. They're not new to the last 10 years, but over the last 10 years, they've seen this just explosion of popularity uh, and they've been really good. And it's not just because of graphics and technology. Uh, there's been some 
spectacular graphic movies that have bombed <clears throat> Transformers. Um, but there's something about the superhero uh, genre, the way that they've kind of displayed it over the last 10 years that I think has really hit home. And this really hit home for me in the Batman trilogy with Christian Bale. Christian Bale is one of my favorite actors. Love that guy. Um, He's going to be in a movie uh, as Moses in Exodus, and it's going to be awesome. I can't wait. Don't get your hopes up like Noah and then just, like, complain about it. Just enjoy it. It's Christian Bale. It'll be good. Anyway, sorry, rabbit trail. Latest Batman trilogy. Okay, Batman is a 75-year-old character. He first appeared in a comic book in 1939. That is really old, okay? He's an old character, but there's something about the Christian Bale Batman, which is actually Frank Miller's Batman, but that's another story. I'm a dork, I'm sorry. Um, but that, there's something about the, new, the character that Christian Bale uh, took on that hits close to home. You see, the trilogy, it didn't change the backstory of Batman, not really. Um, it kind of played with it a little bit. It didn't change kind of the story of who he was, what happened to his parents. It didn't change anything like that. He was still super rich. But here's the thing. Just like the majority of superheroes, the old Batman, though he didn't have any like superpowers per se, like most superheroes, he was like super rich and he could do whatever he, he wanted to and he did no wrong and he always won, right? That was Batman. But then you get this latest Batman, and we actually have this movie about Bruce Wayne. And the fact that Bruce Wayne is a real guy. Meaning, Bruce Wayne is a haunted man. He's a flawed man. He has weaknesses. He has pride. He has ego, and they get in his way. Right? Um, and whereas most heroes, kind of, their masks are actually their everyday personas. Like Peter Parker is a mask for Spider-Man. Clark Kent is a mask for Superman. With Bruce Wayne, it's different. Batman is actually the mask that he puts on to hide the real Bruce Wayne. And that's kind of the whole story of the trilogy. So Batman with flaws. Batman that actually messes up from time to time. And for me, at least, I loved him for it. Maybe you, maybe you did or didn't, I don't know. But we love a hero like that, that we can actually relate to, right? Well, here's the thing with Jesus that we see in this account tonight. Jesus comes along and gives us something totally different. Okay, because here's, here's the thing about Jesus. He is flawless and he is perfect because he's the son of God. But he's also vulnerable and has weakness, so he's not detached. He's not aloof. He's not distant from us. The story of the temptation of Jesus shows us both of these in equal measure. Uh, if you have your hand out there, look at the, the top quote. I think it was the top one. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Can I help us ground us and make sense of this, this account that we're going to look at tonight? This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's, that that kind of gives us a foundation within, with which in look, to look at this account tonight. We're asking the question this semester, Dr. Who? We're asking the doctor, the physician, Luke, who wrote this gospel, who is this Jesus and why does it matter? And Luke wants us to be very sure of the answer. And so right here at the outset of Jesus' public ministry as the Messiah, Luke wants to tell us something. Jesus was tempted. What in the world does that mean? Three points. 
as is usually my custom. The first one's this, down for the struggle, okay? Jesus was down for the struggle. What do I mean here, okay? Uh, we read, you look at chapter, the beginning of chapter four there, we read verses one and two, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, okay, I mean, he's the son of God, that makes sense. He returned from the Jordan, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness, okay, that's kind of weird. He's there for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Well, duh, he didn't eat for 40 days. Um, but we kind of just like, we, we come into this account, we just kind of gloss over it because... To us, it's like, okay, the temptations, right? Because elsewhere in the Bible, it says he had to be like us to be our savior. So he had to go be tempted. So what I'm saying to you, I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of you, you think about the temptation of Jesus and you think to yourself, well, it was, of course he had to be. Like, it was kind of like a, it was like a formality. Like he needed to go do that. Uh, and it's kind of like the inauguration of the president, right? The inauguration of our president every four years uh, is kind of all this pomp and show, right? But if you think about it, the inauguration is really just a formality. There has to be a point at which one guy says some things, and then after he says those things, he's now the president of the United States and can drop nuclear bombs on whoever he wants, right? There's got, that, that's got to happen. He won the election, so at some point, there's just kind of the formality that's got to happen, right? Is that how you think about Jesus being tempted? Well, he was the son of God, and he came to be our savior, so like, he had to be tempted. That makes sense. But here's the question. How would you answer this if I asked you this? How or why did Jesus resist the temptations? How or why did Jesus resist the temptations? I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of people in this room and on this campus, and you used to include me as well, I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of you would have an answer something like this, because he was the son of God. Well, of course he resisted the temptation. He was God, right? Look back at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He's made like us in every respect that he might be our faithful high priest, the one that goes before us, because he himself suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Here's what I want to suggest to you tonight. If the answer, how did Jesus resist the temptations of Satan? If the answer to that is because he was God, Hebrews chapter 2 cannot be true. Let that sink in. If the answer to the question, why did Jesus resist the temptations of Satan? If the answer is, well, because he was God, then Hebrews chapter 2 cannot be true. That's a big, like bomb there and I just let it go and I'm sorry, but let me try to rein you back in. There's a reason why I wanted to read Jesus's baptism, kind of see a little bit of the, the genealogy there and then read the temptation because I think the whole account, Luke wants that to go together. Think about this. Think about the context here. Jesus is grown up now. He just got baptized by John the Baptist, the last prophet, the one whose explicit role, we're told, was to prepare the way for Jesus, okay? The Spirit has then descended on Jesus like a dove to anoint him for ministry, and the Father in heaven has audibly spoken where other people can hear him say, this is my son, okay? So if you think about Jesus at this point in his life, like this has got to be the pinnacle of his life, right? I mean, God has just spoken out loud to tell everybody that it's his son. Jesus is up and he's on his way. He's about to begin his uh, public ministry. He's about to go get him, right? And what happens next? Suffering and temptation. 
Let that sink in. Mark and Matthew, the way they write it, they have Jesus immediately going out into the wilderness. Mark says, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And that's weird. Why belabor this point? Why, why kind of stick on this? Here it is. One reason is because of the prosperity gospel. And, okay, it's one thing to, like, turn it on TBN and kind of make fun of the, the characters that appear there and say some outrageous things about what the Bible says or what Jesus says. Um, but this is, this is basically what the prosperity gospel is. There's many shapes and forms and dollar signs around it. But this is what it, the prosperity gospel basically says. Come to Jesus and get a better life. That's what the prosperity gospel says. Your best life now. Right? Uh, Victoria Osteen. The wife of Joel Osteen, she made headlines in the last week uh, because she said this during a worship service at, uh, at their church. She said this, when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. That's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves. Just do good for your own self. Just do good because God wants you to be happy. I would agree that God wants you to be happy. That's, I shouldn't, I'm opening that can of worms, but... Not in the way that Victoria Osteen said it. Here's the problem with what Victoria Osteen and the prosperity gospel, which infects the way we think about the gospel more than you know. The problem with it is this. That's not what happened to Jesus. Whoops. Jesus was the most full of the spirit man who has ever lived. He was God in the flesh. He was perfectly obedient to the Father's will. And by the end of his ministry, one of his closest disciples betrayed him. All of his friends abandoned him. His own people falsely accused them and then handed him over to be killed. That's Jesus' public ministry for you in a nutshell. And to top all that off, we're told that was God's will for his life. Right? We live in an age of, and I made this up. I Googled it to make sure nobody else has said it. I made this up. We live in an age, I'm proud of myself. We live in an age that I'm going to call karmic cynicism. And I just said a big word and lost you, but I'm going to explain it. We live in an age I'm going to call karmic cynicism. Okay? Here it is. We all know from basic experience that life is hard. Even the most spoiled among us know that it takes work to get what we want, okay? Um, we know that life is hard. But we all have this intrinsic belief, like Job's, like Job's friends, if you read through Job, that if something is wrong in my life, then I must have messed up somewhere. We all have this intrinsic belief that if things are messed up in my life, I must have messed up somewhere. That can be true. I'm not saying that. But here it is, karma. Karma is this, you know, whether you explicitly say, oh, I don't believe that or believe it, whatever. Karma is this belief that good choices, healthy living, right living, whatever, leads to a happy life and the opposite yields misery. Jesus disproves that. Jesus' life was at the center of God's will for all of history, and he suffered greatly. But... We're also karmic cynics. What do I mean by that? Most of us, when things go wrong, you see the finger isn't pointing here. For most of us, when things go wrong, we're going anywhere we can other than here. Right? Basically, it's that thought that everything in my life would be fine if not for fill in the blank. Girlfriend or boyfriend, whether I have one or not whether that person is doing what I want them to do, 
the right friends, the right sorority fraternity, the right resume. If my professor just knew what he was talking about, maybe I would make better grades. If my parents had a clue what was going on in my life, you name it, right? This is the point. This is the point of the baptism, the genealogy, and the temptation all into one. Christianity never teaches that if you come to Jesus, your troubles will go away. Actually, it's Jesus himself who very explicitly says, if you come to me, your life will be hard. And harder than you probably thought it would be. Jesus was down for the struggle. Not only was he down for the struggle, he came down into the struggle. And he knew what he was getting into. We miss that sometimes, right? He came to identify with us in our struggle. That's it. Okay, think about the two things. Baptism. Jesus goes to John the Baptist to submit himself to a baptism of repentance. Meaning, he went down to John the Baptist who was baptizing people who wanted to repent of their sins. Meaning, Jesus submitted to a baptism for sinners. We read in the other gospels that when he comes, John the Baptist says, what in the world are you doing? I need you to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You're going to do this. Jesus submits himself to a sinner's baptism because what he's doing is throwing his lot in with sinners. He's identifying with them. He's down for the struggle. More than that, if you really want to read it, open your Bibles and you can read this genealogy. It's got a long list of names and I spared you that tonight. Jesus has a family tree. You know what a family tree is? A long list of messed up people. (laughs) Can I get an amen? Right? David? Hmm. Murdered a guy because he wanted to sleep with his wife. True story. Jacob lied to his own father and stole his birthright from his brother. Judah? You've never read the story of Judah. I'll let you figure that one out for yourself. Jesus was down for the struggle. He knew what he was getting into and he knew where he came from physically speaking. He was down for the struggle. Now moving on. What about the heart of the struggle? Well, if Jesus was down for the struggle, if he was a man, if he was fully man, born of a woman, he knew what he was getting into, he identified with sinners, he knew what it would cost him, his life. If that's all true, then when we look at Jesus' temptations, when we look at the heart of his struggle in the wilderness with Satan, we actually see the heart of our own struggles as well. How do we see this? Well, look at this. Jesus emerges from the Jordan. He's anointed by the Spirit. He's blessed by God. He's ready to begin his public ministry. Uh, He emerges, and this is it. He emerges with two fundamental questions that he will need to answer for himself the rest of his life. Okay? Until he goes to the cross. What does it mean to be a son of God? And what will this Messiah thing look like? What does it mean to be a son of God? My mother has told me this. I've read in the scriptures to back her up. I've just heard God the Father tell me this from heaven. What does it mean to be a son of God? Secondly, what is, it, what is this Messiah thing going to look like? I'm, I've come to save my people from their sins. What is that going to look like? How am I going to go about this? Jesus the man, the son of Adam, the son of God, would have these two questions to wrestle with the rest of his life on earth. And when you look at the temptations, look at the temptations, the three temptations there. What we see in those three temptations are Satan's attempt at answering those two fundamental questions for Jesus. Satan wants to be the one that answers those questions for Jesus. What does it mean to be a son of God? What is this Messiah thing going to look like? 
Have you ever thought about this? Look, look, at, look at the three of them. Let me just run through them real quick. Temptation one. Satan comes and he says, look, dude, you've been fasting. I hope he said, dude, that would be funny. Um, you've been fasting for 40 days. Your body is now starting to eat itself. Your fast is over. Just go ahead and eat something. God wouldn't want his beloved son to starve, would he? Temptation two. Look, you're the son of God, the rightful king. All of the nations should be bowing down to you and giving you power, honor, and praise and glory. I can give them to you right now. Temptation three. You're the son of God. God would not let anything bad happen to you. It says so right here in my B-I-B-L-E. Satan says that, by the way. You know what? If angels swooped in and saved you, I bet everybody would believe. Here's the thing about the temptations. They make sense, do they not? And, and more than that, who would have known? Okay, hot yeast rolls in the middle of the desert... Who was that going to hurt, really? Okay? Well, actually, I am going to be the ruler of the nation, so why not just go ahead and do it? Well, actually, God will not let anything happen to me until he's ready. So, I guess I could do that. Hmm. Here it is. Had Jesus done any of these, he would have been using his power and his position to serve himself. Don't let that skip you. Had he done any of these things, he would have been using his power and position to meet his own needs. Which would have been totally contrary to the whole reason that he came down in the first place. In other words, had he done any of the things Satan says, he would have been serving himself instead of us. In other words, he would no longer be identifying with us, the ones who need him. In other words, he would no longer be a savior. He'd just be a Lord. Satan was offering Jesus, wait for it, his best life now. It's exactly what Satan is offering. Satan is trying to get Jesus to not be a servant. He's trying to get Jesus to avoid the cross, avoid the suffering. You don't need it. And it all started with the thought of bread. That hits home right here, right? Every night at the dinner table. Um, I stole this from Tim Keller, a guy some of you may know and others of you probably don't care. But um, there's a New York Times article uh, about a movie called Max. And this movie uh, was about Adolf Hitler in his early years. And apparently when this movie was being made, there was numerous or Jewish organizations that protested the making the movie because for fear that people would, would begin to sympathize with Adolf Hitler, right? As if that were possible. Um, maybe it is. Um, and the director in the article, he, he kind of talks about the hubbub and he says, you know, as I was making this movie, I, you know, suddenly I realized that I'd always thought of Hitler as a monster. But what he says in the article is that he started to see that it was actually his daily mundane choices that gradually built. And this is what he says in the article. He says, it hit me. Hitler, who I'd always thought of as a demented monster who wasn't human at all, was really just like us. He wasn't born a monster or spawned a monster. He actually decided to become a monster because he tried becoming an artist and he found that becoming a monster was easier. The movie isn't about Hitler's great crimes. The audience knows all about them already. This is about his small sins. His emotional cowardice, 
His relentless self-pity, his envy, his frustration, the way that he collects and nurtures offenses. Hitler, like Osama or Saddam or Milosevic, they all oblige us by representing an uncomplicated picture of evil. But nobody wakes up one day and slaughters thousands of people. They make choices one at a time. It's huge, in my opinion. Every single day, you and I are faced with choices. Right? They all hinge on two fundamental questions. What does it mean to be a child of God? And what is this Christianity thing supposed to look like in my life? What does it mean to be a child of God? And what is this Christian thing supposed to look like in my life? How you, in your everyday life, answer those two questions is the heart of the struggle that we call life. And you will be dealing with them for the rest of your life. Our lives are filled, filled with instances of people at every turn failing to meet our expectations. How are you going to deal with that? How do I deal with the person that I know is talking about me behind my back? How do I deal with my parents who can't even love each other well? How do I deal with this resume of accolade after accolade that no one seems to appreciate the way they should? How do I deal with grades that should have gotten me a much better job or gotten me into a better school? Uh Uh-oh. How do I deal with a friend or sibling that cannot do anything right? How do I deal with the boy or girl who just doesn't know what they're missing out on? That one hits home, right? When did everything in my life start falling apart? Ever have those moments? There's the karmic cynicism, and here it is. Could it have anything to do with this? That there was a moment when you decided that the world was created to revolve around you. At least that's what you're telling it every day. It's exactly what Satan was telling Jesus. Dude, this thing was all made for you. Just take it. But Jesus says no. Jesus marches straight out into the wilderness to face struggle. And what he tells Satan and us is there's a better way. What is the better way? Finally here. Rising above the struggle. Rising above the struggle. What is the better way? Well, there's two answers here. There's a practical answer and there's a more uh, foundational one. So very quickly, the first practical answer, maybe it sticks out to you. It is written. It is risen. Jesus responds to each of Satan's ploys with scripture. And when I say scripture, I mean the Old Testament. <laughs> the Old Testament is what Jesus, is, Jesus uses, okay? Let that stick. Um, What does it mean to be a son of God? And what will this Messiah thing look like? For Jesus, scripture is his immediate go-to. And for Jesus, scripture is enough. It's the only thing he says in response. And now, here's the thing. Here's where all of us just start, like, lowering our heads and we get really shameful because he's going to tell me to read my Bible, right? Right? We all feel bad about that, don't we? Yes. Let's just agree. We feel bad about how much we read our Bibles. Let's just agree with that. Let's hug each other. Let's cry if we need to. It's okay. Guess what? 
You need to read your Bible more. Yes. Yes. My mom was right. I need to read my Bible more. I need to be with Jesus in the morning. I promised myself this time I really was going to read through the whole Bible in a year. You've been telling yourself that for 10 years. We need to read our Bibles. We do. But think about this with me. Think about how remarkable this is. Please, for a second. Jesus was suffering. His body was eating itself. He had not had food in 40 days. Have y'all watched Naked and Afraid? Uh, 21 days. 21 days and you have a partner who's naked. It's weird. But... After 21 days, it never fails. They all, even if they eat food, they always have lost at least like 20 pounds, okay? Your body starts eating itself. 40 days, Jesus was suffering. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. And Satan starts talking to him about hot, steamy bread. That is a temptation. If I've ever heard of one. And Jesus looks right back at him and says, no, nah, I got this. I got the Bible. Who says that? Nobody. Jesus did, though. And we think, wait, I thought you told me at the beginning Jesus was like kind of a real guy, somebody we can relate to. I can't relate to that. This is it. Jesus doesn't throw verses at the devil. Because, by the way, the devil gives the Bible right back to Jesus. What is it that Jesus gets that we don't? I ran across this quote in a sermon unrelated to anything I've said tonight. Uh, but I love this saying uh, that narrative fuels lifestyle. Narrative fuels lifestyle. Meaning the story that you believe about yourself and about life fuels the way in which you live. Okay? I love that. Get this. This is a nod to Les Newsom, my campus minister. Jesus knew growing up with his mama telling him, growing up with reading it in the scriptures, that this story in this book, if it is true, is reality itself. And if it is true, and if it is reality itself, when false realities confront me, I can look them in the face and say, no, you're wrong. When my conscience comes at me and says, God will not even look at you because of the things you've done, you can look at scripture and say, nah, uh Because he told me something different. Why do I keep screwing up? Why is it that I keep determining to read my Bible and then I read like maybe one day and never again? Why is it that I can't keep my hands off my boyfriend or girlfriend even though it brings me incredible shame every time I do it? Why is it I keep losing my mind on Thursday nights wherever you may be? Why is it that I cannot die to the unreal expectation of being involved in everything and believing that I will do it all well? If those are true of you, it's because you are believing a story that is not in line with the gospel that we find in this book. Memorize verses, memorize passages, go to all the Bible studies that you can. But unless this story penetrates your life, it has no power at all. There's no power in it. The last one is this. The last thing, the, the kind of the foundational answer. What does it mean to be a child of God? What does it look like to do this Christian thing? The parallels in the story are striking. The 40 days are reminiscent of Israel. If you go back and read Exodus and, num- and Numbers, Israel wanders in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years. 
But unlike Israel, Israel wandered and grumbled. Jesus goes out and is perfectly faithful and obedient. Jesus' responses all come from Deuteronomy, a book that was written uh, to record what Moses says to the people when the 40 years of wandering are over. A book that is a re-giving of the law, the law that that book says we are to live by. All three of Jesus' quotes come from Deuteronomy 6 through 9, okay? Get what Jesus says. Man shall not live by bread alone. God told men to worship him. God told men not to put him to the test. You're starting to see how remarkable this is. Jesus did not say, Satan, I'm God. You know I can't do that. He deliberately empties himself of that claim which he had every right to make. And he puts himself in the position of a man because he was one. He's identifying with his people, which means he's identifying with sinners. In other words, Jesus is taking the place of sinners in everything he does. In in other words, he is showing us the very essence of the gospel itself. What does it mean to be a child of God? And what does this Christian thing look like? The answer will not be found in you determining for yourself to try harder next week. It will never be found in that. Because you can't do it. It's not in anything you do. It's in something he did. That's it. This is what makes Jesus the true hero. And what it actually makes him is this. Catch this. The new Adam. The first Adam. Think about it. The first Adam lived in paradise in the midst of abundance. He disobeyed God's word. He served himself instead of God. And he destined all of his posterity and creation itself to life in the wilderness. But the second Adam... Though he lived in paradise, left it, and came into our wilderness in the midst of suffering and temptation. And he obeyed even to the point of death. So that sinners could have life. Let's just be honest with you. Nothing about that makes sense. But what if it's true? It makes Philippians 2 just jump right off the page. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought, who, sorry, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Again, 
I'll just suggest to you, I don't pretend that that makes sense. But what if it's true? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we need to process that. That Jesus, our Savior, was God. He was perfect. He was flawless. We get that. But was he really a man? Does he really know what I struggle with? Has he really been tempted in every way like me, yet without sin? I need that kind of Savior. We thank you for giving to him to us. And we ask that you would just show him to us day after day. We pray it in his name. Amen.